We're blessed we are to have the scriptures of God in our own tongue. And we read from them now from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Starting to read in Isaiah 25 and continuing through into chapter 26. And that's on page 708 in the the Bibles in the pews. The reading, uh, we'll begin at verse 6, and it begins by speaking about the mountain of the Lord, speaking of the dwelling place where the Lord was present with his people in Mount Zion, and a feast is being prepared. Uh, The Lord's hand of blessing is on this place. Uh, We won't be dwelling on the feast later, but you could... Think about the wedding feast of the Lamb and this sign of of God's blessing on his people. And the marvellous promise about death being swallowed up by God forever and tears being wiped away. Verses that uh, will be echoed in the New Testament. Uh, It goes on then to the destruction of the wicked. Moab is an enemy of of God's people at this time and it will be trampled down. Uh, There's a a play on words in verse 10 of chapter 25. Uh, A chief city of Moab was called Madmen, and the Hebrew word for a dunghill is Madmena. So when it speaks of it being trampled down in a dunghill, he's he's, uh, got a a play on words that his listeners would have appreciated. So we're starting at verse 6 of chapter 25, and then reading through into chapter 26, which is uh, the section we'll consider later. Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 6. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim, but the Lord will lay his pompous well, will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground to the dust. In that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. 
Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. Amen. We ask God's blessing upon his word. What do you like better, the city or the country? Do you like green fields or do you like interesting buildings? Would you rather work in the city? Would you rather live in the country? Or do you like to go on holiday? Do you like to visit a city or countryside? A lot of people lean towards one or the other. Uh, but I suppose there are so many variables. You might think, well, it depends on the type of countryside. It depends on what city it would be. But cities are remarkable places. They're amazing structures. Uh, so many people living together. The resources that they need. I mean, the plumbing that they need, the road systems, the supply of food for when you have millions upon millions of people living together. And cities can be very productive places because you've got so many skilled people, you've got the workforce gathered together, you've got the resources, uh, you have the producers, the consumers. There are so many specialist services that you can get in cities that you couldn't get in a rural setting. A small village will never have a specialist uh, surgical unit or a fine jewellers or a concert orchestra. And when you visit some of the major cities like Paris or London, you're conscious that it's not just the resources of a, a massive city, but that the, the wealth of an empire uh, of many nations has flowed into those places to create the structures and the amazing uh, monuments and buildings that you can see there. And when I thought about it, you know, cities are concentrated. They're concentrated. They're concentrations of, of people, of wealth, of power. And that can be their strength, and that can be 
their weakness. You may find a concentration of the talented, of skillful, good people. But you can also find a concentration uh, of bad people. If a village of a thousand people has one dangerous criminal in it, uh, and then if you have a city that's got a thousand times the population, well, it seems possible that not only will you have a thousand such people, but they can band together and have some organized crime. So the city as a concentration of humanity is a frequent image in the scriptures from Babel, when the people wouldn't spread out, but were going to build this tower uh, through Jericho, that stood in their way at getting into the promised land, Nineveh, Babylon, Babylon as a symbol in, in Revelation. Again and again, uh, the city can be a symbol of pride, of human arrogance, uh, of opposition to the cause and the people of God. But there is another city uh, upon which God sets his favour, established on Mount Zion, Jerusalem, where God's dwelling was to be, where he would dwell amongst his people, where the Holy of Holies would sit within the temple, and within that, the Ark of the Covenant of God. And we sing so often about Mount Zion and about Jerusalem and about God's city. The earthly Jerusalem, the city of God. But we know that its inhabitants were ultimately unfaithful to God. They turned from God and his judgment fell upon them as he had warned them by his prophets and a terrible destruction. But we can still usefully sing and talk about Jerusalem because when we turn to the New Testament, the letter that was written to the Hebrews, uh, it tells us a lot about the old Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem, the earthly and the heavenly of which it was a type. In chapter 11 of Hebrews, it talks about Abraham, the man of faith, the friend of God. And he's described as, looking forward to the city that has foundations. What's this city going to be like? It says he's looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. People talk about designer clothing. Here's a city whose designer is God. And later in Hebrews 11, we're told they desire a better country, therefore a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So here we have this, this other city uh, which God has designed and built, which he has prepared for his people. And then in the next chapter of Hebrews, there's a contrast between Mount Sinai, and it speaks of the blazing fire there, of the darkness and the gloom, a place that the people were afraid of. But the writer tells the New Testament believers, and therefore us as well, he says, this applies to those who believe in Jesus Christ. But you have come 
to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So he says, you're coming, you have come, to the heavenly Jerusalem. When we're converted, when we become God's children, we become part of a structure that joins us to God the Father through Christ the Son and dwelt by the Spirit. And there are different pictures for the way in which we're joined to God through Jesus. One of them is the body of Christ, with us all as parts of the body, joined to other believers and joined to the head who is Christ. Uh, in Ephesians, there's another picture where it's like we're all part of a temple. And Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone and we're all bricks in the temple. And we also then have this picture of the city, the New Jerusalem. Uh, we have this picture there as uh, the dwelling place of God where we dwell together and we're part of that with God and there's that lovely picture as you come to the end of the Bible Revelation 21 an angel says to John come I will show you the bride so he's speaking about the church he says I'll show you the bride the wife of the lamb and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem described earlier as prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So there's two cities here. In 1859, Charles Dickens wrote a tale of two cities. If you've read it or if you've seen the uh, film version, you'll know that the two cities in his book are London and Paris at the time of the French Revolution. Well, in this passage from Isaiah, we have a tale of two cities, the city of God and the city of the wicked. Two cities, two paths, two fates. In 426 AD, Augustine, the famous Christian writer and leader from North Africa finished writing a book which he called The City of God and in that long work he contrasts between the city of God which God's people belong to and what he calls the earthly city which represents fallen rebellious society. So let's think about these two cities uh, and first of all, just thinking about the context, I want to look at the uh, first part of chapter 26 that we read. It sits within a particular section of Isaiah that starts at chapter 24 and runs through to the end of chapter 27. <clears throat> and most commentators see this as a very distinctive part. One compares it using musical terms. It's like the, the finale of a movement. It, it brings together lots of, of great themes in a very distinctive way. 
follows on a lot of woes pronounced on on various cities that God's judgment is going to come to in various peoples. But chapter 24 to 27, sometimes it's been called Isaiah's Apocalypse. Uh, so prophecy, as you know, is, is, the, the, is not always about the future. It's often preaching to the present. Um, but sometimes commentators talk about a style within the books of Daniel and Revelation in particular uh, that's called apocalyptic. It deals with the end times, often in very vivid and dramatic pictures. And sometimes these four chapters have been called Isaiah's Apocalypse. He's look, talking about the end times, about a great dramatic struggle between good and evil. It starts off uh, in chapter 24 about the coming day of the Lord that uh, it will combine both judgment and promise. It will contain darkness and light. Uh, and in this it's like many of the prophecies of the future in the Gospels and in Revelation. Uh, there are prophecies of, of growing sin, of men waxing worse and worse. Uh, but there's also prophecies of the deliverance of the faithful, of the witness going into all the world, of the mustard seed growing and growing and growing and the gates of hell not able to stop its spread. So there's going to be a polarisation. I vaguely recall from school some sort of a thing you used to do with magnets and magnetic filings where you could pull them apart. And uh, I'm a little vague on the science, but I, I, as I recall, it's, you know, it's polarisation. We use the term sometimes in, in different ways. It means where you, you pull things to two opposite extremes. Polarisation. And there's this kind of polarisation in the future where the middle ground disappears uh, and um, some move to the side of wickedness and end and destruction and some come to Christ and come to light and deliverance. Uh, you know, we read about those who receive the mark of the beast and those who are sealed with the spirit. So the opening of, of this section of Isaiah, there's a lot to say about judgment on the earth uh, and on an unnamed city. Um, and in a way, it's, it's often seen as being representative, therefore, of all the cities that have set themselves up against God. The city is described as being wasted and broken down, desolate, its gates battered into ruin. That's all in chapter 24. And then in the first half of chapter 25, it's the, the writer Isaiah says to God, you've made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. And then coming down to the end of chapter 25, if you've your, your Bible open, and we read this verse, the last verse of chapter 25 says, and the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground the dust. They start off so high, you'd be craning your neck to look up these great high fortifications and where are they going to end up? Lying on the ground, like dust that you can walk on. We'll read about the believers walking on those collapsed walls later. So there's a lot about God's judgment on the wicked. Ruin and rubble. Dust and devastation. Wails of despair and the groans of the dying. 
listen. Can you hear? Can you hear singing? Joyful singing. Happy and confident believers in God singing. And this is what they're singing. Verse 1 of chapter 26. We have a strong city. God's judgment has fallen on the wicked. Their walls are lying down. And what are God's people singing? They're happy. They're confident. They say, we have a strong city. God's people should not have their heads down because we have a strong city and we are on the winning side. In ancient times, cities were places to run to for protection. We've talked about their concentration and their resources, but in ancient times, the big thing was a city had a big wall around it and it had lots of protections. It had fortifications and that kept you safe. In old stories of the American Wild West, when the Apaches would go on the warpath and they would be burning cabins and attacking settlers, what you had to do when you got the message was get on your buckboard and get the horses going and head for the nearest fort and get in through the gate and inside the fortifications you would be safe. You needed to get in. And it was like that in the time of Isaiah in those centuries. If the Assyrians were coming across the border or the Moabites or the Philistines and they're coming across and they're raiding farms and they're, they're attacking the settlers, you need to get to the nearest walled city. You need to get through that gate and behind there you will have protection. Because if a city was built well, uh, then it was very hard to get into. This was before gunpowder. You couldn't blow a hole in the wall. And unless you were going to have a long, and, uh, a long siege that would take a lot of time and a lot of resources, uh, they were very hard to get into. Its defences were very important. And this city in verse 1, it's a strong city and it's got walls and bulwarks. So the walls, you know, we're not talking about little ornamental bricks. We're talking about huge, big slabs of stone that masons have fitted together so there's nothing in them. If you visited some really old cities, you see the size of the stones in the walls. And it has bulwarks. Uh, this older word can refer to, to wooden fortifications. So it could be like wooden ramparts built out from the walls. Uh, it can also refer to massive banks of earth. Sometimes you visit these places and they have huge big uh, banks built up supporting the walls. Uh, in English it can also refer to like breakwaters. You know how thick they are to keep the sea out and to protect a harbour. And what kind of, it's a figure of speech, these walls and bulwarks, these protections. It says the Lord sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Salvation then is what we put our hope in. That's what keeps us safe. That's like a massive stone wall protecting us. God's salvation. Salvation. We need a saviour. What did the angels tell the shepherds? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a saviour, who is Christ the King. A saviour. That's what we need to keep us safe. We need God's salvation, the person who brings it, 
as a saviour. Paul told young Timothy of the God who saved us because of his own purpose and grace, which has now been manifested through the appearing of our saviour, Christ Jesus. Second Timothy chapter 1. The Bible speaks of us being loved by God as he looks on us in Christ. It's as we're in Christ that we're safe. As we are in union with Christ, then God looks at us and he sees Christ's righteousness. That Christ has taken our sins and died in our place. If you got to that ancient city, if you managed to get through the gate behind its walls, you were safe. The baddies could be outside running about with their burning sticks and their spears. If you were through the gate, you were safe. Outside, you were in danger. You had no protection, nothing to protect you. Now, there are a lot of people today that we move amongst, and they're not atheists. Uh, They believe in some higher power. They may have a Christian influence on them. They may talk about their spirituality but they are vague about any relationship to or reliance upon the one person who can save them, Jesus Christ. But if you're joined to him, you're safe. You're safe from here to eternity. And if you're apart from him, then you're staring at approaching judgment. You're exposed to the anger of God with no defense. Now, if you look down then to uh, verse 2, it's nice to see that this is not a closed city. They haven't sealed up the gates. There's no way in. It's not there's some exclusive sect sitting inside. And if you're in there, you're grand. But if you're outside, uh, you've, you've little hope. What do they say? Open the gates. Open the gates. It's not a closed place. It's welcoming, uh, it's accessible. Despite the fact that it's fortified, it's accessible. Open the gates. For those who are made right with God, for the righteous nation who keep faith, the gate is open. And this is picture language. And we're told in the New Testament, behold, this is the day of salvation. This is the accepted time. The gate is open. God the Father calls you to come to him without money and without price through the Lord Jesus Christ. We sing in Psalm 118 verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. Younger children, do you remember who said, I am the door? It was Jesus Christ. He said, I am the door. I am the way to God. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. To be saved from judgment, to be safe behind the wall of the heavenly Jerusalem of salvation, what do you think that would do to a person's mental state? Do you think you should be in through that big gate behind those walls and bulwarks and Anxious or ill at ease? Well, have a look at verse 3. It's a verse to underline in your Bible. 
verse to memorize. And many of you may have it as a text on your wall at home. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. As probably a lot of you would guess, the word that's translated translated as peace is shalom. And it comes from a, a root meaning to complete or to make whole. So as we, I'm sure, have, have heard before, that word shalom doesn't just mean peace as in an absence of trouble. It's got a sense of harmony, of wholeness, of being made complete, of completion, no gaps. Without it, without God's peace, without that shalom completeness, people live lives where they're very conscious there's something missing. It's incomplete. Things are lead to dissatisfaction, disillusionment, shattered hopes. I hope that they may find fulfillment and, and completeness in relationships or occupations, whatever. Um, but for those, only when humans have their minds stayed on their God and maker can they know true shalom, true fulfillment and rest. We think of the Lord Jesus called the Prince of Peace. Sometimes it's read and people comment at Christmas about you new know, wars ending. And that is a, a, a lovely thing. But it's more than that. He's the, the Prince who brings completeness who restores creation, who restores humanity. But for the wicked, says the Bible, there is no rest. Look down then to verse 4. And verse 4 takes us back to the city of, of man, of, of fallen humanity, of rebellious humanity. And it says that God has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the, whole, the lofty city. Uh, and there are an awful lot of references in 25 and 26 to height, uh, you know, to the, the high fortifications, the lofty city. It's up high. And often uh, cities were built in very inaccessible places. That made them all the better if, if you think of um, Stirling Castle, Edinburgh Castle, Places like that, they're set up on top of a rock and on one side maybe it's a sheer cliff to get up to it and more easily uh, defended. Um, I remember we were on holiday in a hot, dry area in the south of France near the Spanish border and we drove to this lonely, hilly area where there was a ruined castle sitting at the top of a slope and it was a long, we'd gone too late in the day, we should have gone there when it was cool in the morning, but it was really hot. And you were climbing up, and as I was climbing up, sweating under this sun, I was thinking, imagine trying to go up this with armour on your back. Imagine going up with a shield and some kind of device to try and attack the gate of this castle. How difficult it would have been. It was in a lofty, it was in a high place. Yet, from such a height as this is, it's brought crashing down, down, down to earth. Not just to earth, to ground level. Paul told 
the Christians in the Greek city of Corinth, the weapons of our warfare have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. So he's applying it to a spiritual warfare. We don't attack bricks and earthenworks and wooden palisades. But we attack those things that throw themselves up against the truth of God. And all the elites that seem so far out of our reach, who dominate the media, who control academic posts, the bubbling cauldron of poisonous philosophies that seem so dangerous and so influential, so resistant to the truth, all of these will be brought low. Colossians 2.15 tells us that God uh, disarmed the rulers and authorities through Christ and he put them to open shame through Christ's death and resurrection and triumphed over them in him. Two cities. There are also two paths to consider before we finish. If we go down to verses 6 to 8, we see the path of the righteous. The believer walks in the path of God's judgments. Uh, That's God's revelation of his power and will. And his path, the path of the righteous, is made level. So he's not walking along like some of the potholes in our road that you're going to twist your ankle or disappear. God fills it in. He fills in the chasms and the gullies. There's all these big gaps maybe where there. God makes it level. He fills it in. He removes the obstacles. Now it's very, very interesting to read what he fills it in with. They actually find they're walking on the rubble of the enemy buildings. There's only dust left from these mighty fortresses and they, they act as filling beneath their feet. Sometimes somebody wants to build on a site and there's, they need to build it up and you'll see a sign, filling wanted. Somebody wants them to dump earth or rubble or whatever to bring up the level. Well, God has, has filled it up. He's supplied the filling. It made me think about Jericho. If you think about when they walked round and round Jericho for the seven days, these, I'm sure it was a magnificent fortification. And when the walls came tumbling down, you might have thought, well, they'll fall in big piles of rubble and maybe be a bit hard to climb over, but there'll be gaps here and there. But what does it say in um, Joshua that happened? It says in Joshua 6.20, The wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight in front of him. All the way around, 360 degrees, you could just walk straight in. There wasn't an obstacle left. In the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi gives this promise. You shall tread down the wicked, for there shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Ashes under your feet. There's an even more extraordinary promise in chapter 16 of the book of Romans. Who's going to be crushed under our feet? 
Apostle Paul says the God of peace will crush, will soon crush Satan under your feet. Even the greatest, the most powerful of enemies will be brought low. As the serpent in Genesis was made to crawl on its belly and cursed to eat the dust. We could say more of the path of the wicked in verses 9 to 11. They wander blindly. We're told a couple of times they don't see, they don't learn from God's revelation. Verse 10, he does not learn. He does not see. And it reminds me of the story of Balaam's donkey. Do you remember Balaam's traveling along and God enables his his creature the donkey, to see that there's an angel standing there with a sword uplifted, ready to strike down in judgment. And the supposed wise man, Balaam, he can't see until he's allowed to. And so in verse 11, 26 verse 11, O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. There is judgment like the sword of Damocles hanging over the head of those who are outside of Christ, but they don't see it. Ready to strike down. Indeed, at the end of those who refuse to see God's way, in verse uh, 11, let the fire for your adversaries consume them. them. A fire prepared for the devil and his angels will engulf those who remain unrepentant. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To conclude then this uh, wonderful section from Isaiah, let's just close at verse 12. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. That word ordain is interesting, isn't it? If you think of Question 7 of the Shorter Catechism. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Foreordained, ordain ahead of time. Ordain, if you look it up in the dictionary, as I obviously have done, uh, comes from a word to order. To place an order. So if you think of the way that uh, maybe a, a child might get a box of little men, toy soldiers or animals, and set them all in lines, in rows, it's ordering them. You could do it with soldiers. You order them in lines. Or you think about if you get out a chessboard and all the pieces are in a jumble, and you set every piece just in its place. We use the term ordination when we're putting someone in a job in the church, a deacon or an elder, we're ordaining them, we're setting them aside for a particular role. And I like that thought of the chessboard. God has a place for everything. He has his plan for our lives and he sets the bits in their place and he has ordained for us shalom, peace. Harmony, wholeness, completion. And is it through our doing, well, the last part of verse 12, for you, 
O Lord, have indeed done for us all our works. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.